You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here. Um, Before I get started, I just want to say a big thank you to the worship team this morning. That was awesome, eh? Um, Yeah. Just, you know, especially that last song, Jerusalem, as we were just walking with Jesus through what he went through, that, you know, that brought me to tears, actually. So uh, it's pretty amazing. And that's really what Holy Week is all about. And that's what we're stepping into today as we start Palm Sunday, just that as Jesus enters Jerusalem and, and everything that he goes through and what he teaches throughout the week and then with the cross and then his resurrection and uh that's why, why we celebrate what he accomplished there. And so we're going to be going on that journey this week. So I just want to encourage you to, um, I, I appreciate that you've started with us this morning, but also to be logging online to our studies that we're having throughout the week, our video studies, and, and reflecting on those, and, and then joining us for Good Friday. And, and we are going to have it outside, but that's obviously weather permitting, so make sure you're, you're looking on social media as well to see if we, we end up having it here instead. Um, but... We are really excited for this week and just celebrating our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Um, On that end, let's turn to Luke 19, and we're going to be starting at verse 28 and going to verse 44. So Luke 19, 28 to 44. This is his triumphal entry on that first Palm Sunday. And it says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. So just about 2,000 years ago, 
less than a week before he'd die on a cross for our salvation, Jesus, as we just read, put another step in God's prophetic plan into motion when he rode a borrowed colt into the city of Jerusalem. In fact, he fulfilled this long-awaited prophecy from Zechariah, which states in uh, 9, 9 to 10, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So as Jesus fulfilled this, the crowd who, who was gathered there for the Passover feast and his disciples who were there with him, when they saw this, this, this miracle-working prophet, a descendant of King David himself, riding into the city as, as, this, as this coming king who was going to bring this peace they were waiting for, it's no wonder that they got excited. It's no wonder they started praising God. And, and as we can read in other accounts, they started chanting, Hosanna, which means save us. And then they were laying their cloaks and palm branches down at his feet, finally crying out to God with, with praise and adoration, singing from Psalm 118, which Pastor Brad read earlier, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a king that they've been waiting for for a long, long time. A king that had been prophesied over and over to, to come and lead them into freedom, into peace, into salvation. This first Palm Sunday was, without a doubt, Jesus' triumphal entry. This was the very moment when he finally personally proclaimed himself in public as the Messiah King. And the crowd rejoiced. Granted, Judging by the way the rest of the week went down, the crowd and even Jesus' disciples who had started the worship in the first place, we can surmise that they most likely praised Jesus that day with some misplaced expectations. We can assume that they were probably hoping and, and longing for, for an earthly king, one that was going to rid them of Roman tyranny and, and give them political and national freedom again. Um, we can assume this because they were waving those palm branches, which, a lot of, which, which your kids are holding today. And, and that was a symbol for them of, of national pride, of peace, and of victory. And then they were also laying down their cloaks before Jesus, right? And that's an act of honor, which would have signified their desired allegiance to him as their chosen king. And so they're not all wrong, right? They, they just didn't have the full picture. It says they were blinded. And they couldn't see. And it, and it kind of reminds me of my first Palm Sunday experiences when I was a kid. Back then, I always thought of Palm Sunday as, as being one of the best church days, especially for someone who grew up in a more conservative church, because it was always on that day that we didn't have to sit quietly in our pews for once, right? But, but rather that the Sunday school teachers would pass out a palm branch to each one of us at kids, and then we'd march up to the sanctuary doors, and as soon as the congregation started to belt out the hymn, Hosanna, we'd get to walk around the sanctuary waving these palm branches around like it was this big party. 
Because it was. It was this big party celebrating Jesus as the king. And that was the best. Kids love to swing things around. Right, kids? You love to swing things around? Yeah. There's nothing better compared to boring old church. This was so much fun. Right? In fact, why don't we do a trial run right now? Let's do it. You guys are going to do this later when we sing, we sing Hosanna, but let's do a trial run. How does that sound? Okay, grab your palm branches, kids. Grab them, stand up, and let's wave them around. Let's wave them around. Yeah. Nice. I like it. I like it. I, make sure you don't hit your parents, though, or poke their eye out or whatever. Um, oh, now they're hitting their parents. You know what? I, 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 I kind of feel left out here. So hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. I, I need to grab my own palm branch. And then we're going to try again. Hold on a sec here. Here we go. All right. Now this is a palm branch. All right. Let's wave them around. And then on the count of three, we're going we're gonna to shout Hosanna. Parents, you can join in too. And anyone who's not a parent can also join in, of course, as well. So let's do this. All right. Let's wave our palm branches around as hard as we can. All right. One, two, three. Hosanna! Yes, that's awesome. So you guys have to do that when we, later after the, after the message, all right? You guys got to be even more enthusiastic than that, but that was awesome. All right. <laughs> that thing's been laying around in our garage for a long time. I had to make use of it. Um, all right. Anyways, so our kids are going to get to do that again later, but, but hopefully we'll all grasp the reason behind it, a little bit more than I did as a kid, because, because again, as I, I look back, I, I got to admit that I really had no idea why I was doing that. It was just, it was just fun. Um, and I'm sure the Sunday school teachers explained it to us, but I wasn't, I wasn't worried about that. Just wanted to make sure I was waving it as fast as I could. Uh, again, which is not unlike the crowd gathered around Jesus as, as he makes his way into Jerusalem. You know, they, they see his disciples worshiping him. And, and it seems like they just get caught up in the moment, you know, in that crowd mentality, without actually taking a moment to ask what it all really means. You know, without digging into Psalm 118 and being like, oh, he's going to be the cornerstone that's rejected. The king of all nations. They just quote the part that they're, that they're, that they're excited about. And so it seems like they place their own expectations upon Jesus to be that king who just restore their own nation and win back their national freedom. Of course, their actions also meant that they were ready then and there, it seems, to both defy King Herod and Caesar, right? Like Moses had done with Pharaoh so many years before during that first Passover, and they're there to celebrate Passover. So it's all lining up um, in their mind, which also means that Jesus had every opportunity right then and there to use the crowd to incite a rebellion in Jerusalem against Roman captivity and win back their rights as a politically free people. But instead, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he weeps over it. He weeps. Because they don't get it. Because they don't understand what it'll truly take for peace to come in this world and more importantly in their souls and with God. Because even in that very hour, 
Jesus didn't make his way onto the earthly throne or take up the sword to incite the crowd to rise up and run the Romans out of town. Instead, Jesus makes his way into the holy temple where he had made a whip of cords and ran the moneylenders and thieves out of God's holy presence. An anticlimactic and, and I'm sure confusing turn of events for the crowd, right? Many of whom would be among another crowd later on that week crying out for this so-called pretender king to be crucified at the cross. Crucify him! Crucify him! What happened to Hosanna and blessed be to God? So... As we think of that crowd, I think we're just as guilty as them sometimes in our lives, right? We, we worship Jesus sometimes for who we want him to be or for what we want him to do for us, but not for who he really is, which gets us into all sorts of frustrations and trouble and doubt and the temptation to reject Jesus because he didn't meet our selfish or misplaced expectations. So we can learn from the crowd there. To look into the Bible and say, who, who is Jesus? Who is this king? And worship him for who he really is. But yet, you know what's amazing here is that even though we can see the way the week pans out, that a majority of the crowd and even his disciples seem to be uh, not getting it and worshiping for the wrong reasons, Jesus still receives their worship, doesn't he? He still receives their worship because, again, his, his disciples and even the crowd weren't totally off base for praising God in this moment because it was a moment worth rejoicing in. Though, though again, for a way better reason than they'd realized, Jesus had actually come to be their victorious king. Though they didn't realize yet that he was there not to take on an earthly crown, but a crown of thorns. Not to sit on the throne of David alone, but at the right hand of God over the whole kingdom of God. And not to rule just over the nation of Israel or Judah, but over all nations as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Ultimately, Jesus came to win victory over their true enemy, which was sin and death. He came not to take up arms, but instead to stretch out his arms at the cross for their redemption from evil and to reconcile them to God once and for all. He came to be their righteousness. And so, yes, in a sense, they were right in worshiping God and honoring Jesus as king on this occasion, especially because, as Jesus said, if they didn't, if his disciples stopped worshiping him, the stones would have cried out. And the reason he says that is, is, is also because some of the Pharisees, it's always the Pharisees, right? They didn't like the fact that, that Jesus was receiving and, and accepting the crowd's worship, that they, and, or that they were worshiping God on his behalf, because it seems like they knew what it signified. So, so ironically, it, it seems like the Pharisees uh, had actually grasped the symbolism of what was going on more than anyone else in that moment. They didn't embrace it, though, obviously. They, they were offended by it. 
Because for Jesus to receive praise was synonymous. They, they realized this. was synonymous with him claiming that, that he was the Messiah King who'd come to save them. Of course, this was blasphemy to the Pharisees. So in their anger and offense, they approach him. Luke 19.39 says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're saying, don't let them worship you. Stop them from worshiping you as the Messiah, as the King, as the Son of God. That's not right. That's not appropriate. It's heresy. Tell them to quit. But this is how Jesus responds. Luke 19.40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If the crowd, if his disciples weren't worshiping God in this moment, the stones would be crying out. Someone or something is going to praise God and the Son whom he sent because he's worthy of all praise. Nothing could quench or silence that truth and nothing ever will, even if it has to be inanimate stones proclaiming it, right? But, but let's take a step back and, and, and think about that phrase. What does it even mean that the stones would cry out? Especially because stones can't talk. Has everyone heard a stone speak? No, that's good. Then you're all sane, I think. Um, more specifically, we should ask, what, what stones is Jesus referring to, especially because he says these very stones? These very stones. So, so he's referring to something specific. Have you ever thought about that? So I think there's a little bit more symbolism or meaning behind Jesus' statement about stones crying out than, than for us to simply think he's just referring to the stones in front of him on the path or, or something like that. Not to mention that it would also seem kind of random for Jesus to start talking about stones of all things, wouldn't it? I mean, why didn't he say if, oh, if these people stop worshiping, the, the grass will cry out or the fig trees will rejoice or the clouds will magically form in a way that looks like my face and then, and then spell out Hosanna or something. You know, why doesn't he say something like that? No, he specifically mentions stones. And, and on that end, it's also important to remember that nothing Jesus says is random. Nothing Jesus says is random. He's the Word of God made flesh. He is the Word of God made flesh. His words are important. So we need to take them seriously. And so I'd like to propose to you all this morning, and as I know I've done in the past, but it's, it's good to have a, a reminder and think about these things again, uh, that there's more to this statement and, and to the symbolism or personification of stones crying out than we often realize. In fact, when it, when it comes to rocks or stones the Bible, especially the Old Testament, has a lot to say about them when we dig into it. In story after story, stones are used symbolically, sometimes as a pillar for God's people to remember what he's done or as a symbol of covenant or obviously to build things that God has commanded them to build, like the, the temple or the, the walls of the cities like Jerusalem. Stones are used to make altars as well. And, and one of the reasons stones were used in these covenants and in altars and things like that was because they signified something that's lasting and unchanging. Right? For example, after Joshua makes a covenant with God's people, declaring that they will serve the Lord faithfully, 
He grabs this big stone and he sets it up by a tree next to the sanctuary of God. And then he declares from Joshua 24, 25, he says, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Of course, a stone can't speak or, or hear, right? So, in other words, it, what he's saying is that if they ever rescind or disobey the covenant that they've made with God, if they fail to acknowledge God as Lord in their lives, the stone will always be there to symbolically cry out to them as both a reminder of their covenant and as a witness against them for breaking it. In another story, after God's people cross the River Jordan and enter into the Promised Land, God commands them to place a pillar of stones, which is a stack of stones, uh, there by the river to always remind them that it was God who rescued them. Right? So whenever they forgot, again, as we humans tend to do, and we start to think that, you know, we've accomplished a life of blessing and freedom in our own strength, like the Israelites tended to do as well over and over again. These stones, you know, every time they saw them, would always be there to cry out as a witness against their pride and to humbly remind them that it was God who brought them there in the first place, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And as if to underline this idea of of stones crying out as both a witness to God's faithfulness and against those who refuse to acknowledge and follow him, Jesus, again, as he's riding into the city on the colt, what does he do? He tearfully proclaims this warning to the people of Jerusalem. He tearfully proclaims about Jerusalem from Luke 19, 41 to 44. And when he drew near the, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace which would be his death and resurrection, right? But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And what does he say? And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, soon, he's saying, the the scattered stones, the broken stones of the temple and of the city walls will cry out in judgment against them, against those who stubbornly missed out on what was happening, against those who refused to take warning and chose not to follow God or worship Jesus as Lord. This prophecy of Jesus, by the way, came to pass years later, around 70 A.D., when the Romans, in response to a failed Jewish rebellion, destroyed and sacked Jerusalem, also tearing down the temple and leaving the city in ruins. Where the scattered and broken stones left from the fallout of that destruction were left to symbolically cry out from the ground as a witness against them, against the rebellion like the blood of Abel crying out from the ground to God as a witness against Cain. So in light of Jesus' words here, and in the way stones were used in the Old Testament, it seems to make sense then that, that Jesus is drawing from that imagery, right? That this is a warning for the Pharisees who are telling him to stop. It's a warning for the Pharisees he's speaking to, and also to everyone else, 
That if he isn't acknowledged as, as the Messiah King, that if the people reject him and turn from their covenant with God, it'll be to their shame and to their own destruction. Just as the very stones of the walls of Jerusalem standing in front of them and of the temple before them will all cry out from the ground as a witness against the rebellion and pride in rejecting him. So God have mercy on us that we are not put to shame by those stones. But there's another side to this symbolism as well. A more uplifting and encouraging and positive side. Because some would argue, and, and I do like this idea that, that, that by mentioning stones, Jesus was also prophetically, prophetically referencing those who would experience his resurrection life. He's those who would faithfully worship him in spirit and in truth. More specifically, it's possible that Jesus was talking about living stones, as Peter, whose very name also means rock, Later calls them, right? First Peter 2, 4-5. Peter says this, As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. He's also quoting Psalm 118 there, right? Or, or, or he will in the... Or sorry, later it's Psalm 118. Never mind. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so that's pretty cool as well, right? Peter's talking about the church there, about, about us, about all of us. He's talking about those who've, who've been washed, born again, and renewed by the blood and resurrection life of Christ, who've had their hearts of stone turned to hearts of flesh, who've been transformed, again, as it says in 1 Peter, into living stones, built up upon Jesus, who is the cornerstone. And here's where Jesus actually quotes Psalm 118. And in and, and Matthew 21, 42, Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read in the scriptures? And it's interesting that, that he quotes Psalm 118, which is what they're worshiping him with when he comes in to, on Palm Sunday. But they forgot about reading this part, I guess. Didn't you ever read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. So, th so this could certainly be part of what Jesus is talking about when he says the stones will cry out, that though many re will reject him, there will soon be those who won't. That there will be living stones who will rise up in the name of Jesus, who will be built up in the Spirit of God for the purpose of eternally proclaiming his name and being his witnesses to the world. And to underline this theory, let, let me present further practical evidence for it. So on the way into Jerusalem, next to the Mount of Olives, which he was descending, right, it's customary for them to place uh, not flowers, but actually stones, both big and small, on top of the gravestones of the dead whenever they would visit. In fact, even if you go to the Jewish section of the cemetery here in Lethbridge, on the cemetery on Scenic Drive there, um, you'll see that they still do this. There's stones placed upon the gravestones. And it's theorized that these stones are meant to symbolize the lasting memory of those buried there, or it's also possi possibly a, a, a way for them to keep their souls in the grave until the Messiah appears. Whatever the specific reason, though, we can see that both gravestones and the stones on the gravestones 
are meant to represent and memorialize the dead. So it's very possible then that as, as Jesus was entering the city, he looked over, and upon seeing the stones piled on top of the graves, he might have pointed to them as his, as his point of reference for the very stones that would cry out. The implication there being that the dead, represented by these stones, would rise up from their graves and cry out as witnesses to his authority and salvation and victory over sin and death at the cross. Does it sound kind of weird? Well, guess what? This very thing happened during Jesus' death. Matthew 27, 51-53 says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Only days after the crowd is, is silenced, after Jesus had been rejected by them, and sent to the cross. The rocks of the temple were split in two as a witness against those who rejected him and as a sign that we can now come to God through Jesus. While at the same time, the rocks of the earth and some of the gravestones and the tombs were, were broken and rolled away so that the faithful saints, the living stones, could rise up from their graves, brought from death to life by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ in order to become miraculous witnesses to his victory and authority over death, even walking around Jerusalem and appearing to many. These very stones would become evidence of the truth that Jesus was and is who he claimed to be on that first Palm Sunday, the Messiah King who had come to redeem us and reconcile us with God into eternity through his perfect work at the cross. Of course, we can't prove all these things, but whether or not Jesus was referring to those stones or something different, the message is still the same though, right? Jesus will be praised because he's the king of kings. He's, he's victorious and worthy. His name will be made known. And one day, every knee in heaven and on earth will bow down to him. And so for us today, as we anticipate that day when every knee will bow down before him, we need, we, we need to embrace the glorious truth that in Christ we are now these living stones. That, that through him we've been raised from death to life as well. And now we're called to be his witnesses on this earth. So let's do it. Let's cry out. Let's make sure the world knows his name and that he is king. Don't let yourself become silenced by whatever political or cultural pressure or fear of man or workplace rules or shyness or selfishness or whatever else might be keeping us from waving our proverbial palm branches and proclaiming his salvation. For we who have been saved and transformed by his spirit are now living witnesses of his victory, lights for his name of his salvation, of his kingship, of his life. As living stones lifted up out of our graves, we're not meant to be silent. 
We're meant to glorify God into eternity by proclaiming this wonderful news that the stone, the stone, was rolled away. And that Jesus is alive. And that his salvation is for anyone who believes until he comes again. In fact, it says in in Revelation, the book of Revelation, that, that when Jesus returns... We'll be praising him as king and, and waving palm branches just like that first Palm Sunday. Though this time everyone there from all nations will be worshiping with full understanding and expectation. Listen to this, Revelation 7, 9 to 10. And it says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Isn't that beautiful? All standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's join them. Let's not be silent. I mean, how could we? If Jesus has changed our life, how could we not cry out? As it says in Hebrews 13, 15, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, as we celebrate that first Palm Sunday when Jesus proclaimed himself as king, Lord, let us learn from the crowds, though, that day. Lord, have, have, have mercy on us that we would not be like the crowds who just get caught up in the moment, but then actually don't surrender our lives to him. Lord, as we consider what you've done for us, as we consider your blood that was shed, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, which cried out from the ground, for judgment. Lord, your blood cries out from the ground for our salvation, for our justification. It covers us in righteousness so that we can come before you, so that we can have peace with you and with one another, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would surrender to you in light of all of those things, in light of what you have done for us, that we would surrender to you and you alone, that you would be King of kings and Lord of lords in our lives, in this church. And wherever we are throughout the week, Lord, that you would be King of kings and Lord of lords and that the world would know that, that we would be living stones who proclaim your name every hour, every day because you are worthy of praise, because the world needs to know that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that does not know you. I pray for your mercy on them. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself right now in the name of Jesus, that they would surrender and believe in his name for their salvation. Because there's nothing better. There's nothing better than to know you and your son whom you have sent because that is eternal life. Lord, and we cry out. We proclaim your name. 
that your kingdom come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.